This is Tom Koslick, the head of research and analytics at Hilltop Securities. Thanks everyone for joining us today. This is the eighth episode of the Hilltop Securities podcast series for 2021. We're recording this on Thursday, July 8th. We're focusing during this recording on the political landscape in Washington, D.C., uh, fiscal policy, and the potential for another massive package, this time maybe for infrastructure stimulus. And so today we have with us Chris Icavella, the Chief Executive Officer of the American Securities Association. Chris is a leading national financial services policy expert. I personally know that his opinions are sought after by regulators, Congress, the media, and also market participants. We are very lucky that he is able to take some time today to discuss not only the ins and outs of Washington, but specifically to discuss the chances that law that lawmakers are able to get something done on infra infrastructure in the, either the near term or maybe by the end of this year. So Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for that warm welcome, Tom. I'm happy to be here. Great. L give me a second here. I wanna set the stage for our conversation. As we sit here now at the beginning of July, we are four months removed from the Democrats slamming through a 1.9 trillion, not billion, trillion rescue plan act which was the last of about $6 trillion of fiscal policy DC lawmakers approved in response to COVID-19. Then in March and April, President Biden proposed his American Jobs Plan and his American Families Plan. And if enacted as proposed, would total about another $4 trillion or so. So lawmakers took a break right before the 4th of July holiday. Now they're not scheduled to be back in Washington until later in the month. But right before the break, the president, along with 10 other lawmakers, stood in front of the White House and proclaimed that they have a deal on infrastructure. So, Chris, first, let's start off with these two items. Do they really have a deal? And then, you know, if yes or no, what really is the general environment the lawmakers are going to be returning to on July 19th? So... The, the answer is it's complicated because I think that there is a deal amongst the bipartisan group that has been negotiating in good faith. And I think that that deal gets complicated by broader politics in Washington and what the, the Biden administration is, is willing to accept as it relates to a follow-on package. So do we have a deal to actually move legislation forward that's going to have the necessary votes to overcome a filibuster? Uh, I don't think so. Not right now. Um, and that's simply because you're in an environment where even though this is a largely bipartisan issue and has been for years, we're in an environment where trust is at a premium. And I think that that is what's going to be the most important thing that happens between now and probably the end of the summer as these negotiations become more public and uh, a deal uh, comes together or it falls apart and ends up just being a reconciliation package. So Chris, when I have been talking in recent months and actually not even just in recent months, going back to uh, last year, I've been citing some Gallup poll data that shows that of all of the most important topics that both the Republicans and Democrats care about, that the topic that there is the most commonality is infrastructure that of 
and I suppose the way that I'm describing it is that theoretically, they should be able to come to an agreement on infrastructure. So what is it in that environment that is not allowing them to uh, kind of find a common ground? Is that the way that we should be thinking about it or looking at it? I think that those polls are exactly right. <clears throat> and they've reflected that sentiment for the last 10 years. And in fact, um, if you remember back in 2015 and 2016, this was something that President Trump made a centerpiece of his campaign and many folks thought that he was actually going to move forward with a package in his first two years that didn't happen they chose to go with health care uh which was a huge mistake and then they they jammed through their tax cut and that was it poison the well for the rest of the time period and uh the voting populace didn't trust the administration to do what it said and you got to change in the house and we know what happened after that. So you fast mm -hmm. forward to right now and all of that is context for the situation that we are uh, set in at this very moment, which is a, an even Senate, a, a democratic house, which is very much in a struggle amongst itself between the moderates and the socialists in the house as to exactly what should be in this bill and what the term infrastructure means. And this is a new debate that we really have never had before. And I think that's uh, that's what's challenging this process is what is infrastructure? What does it mean? How much does it expand? Uh, does it include ideas that relate to uh, the Green New Deal? Is that just rep Republican hyperbole? Are there, um, you know, what's going to help the actual labor unions? What's going to help low-income folks? as it relates to the term infrastructure and, or are we creating new entitlements? So there's a lot of unknowns as it relates to these two packages that were put forth uh, in the spring. And so that's where, where we are with folks trying to just centralize their negotiations and their thinking on roads, bridges, water treatment plants, trying to create a more sustainable energy infrastructure, uh, using renewables, trying to create some credits for that. How do they do that versus, uh, you know, how much money do we give for electric vehicles? Shouldn't we put charging stations all over the United States? But in the end, who's going to benefit from that? Is the country ready for something like that when the amount of electric vehicles that we have is infinitesimal compared to the, the amount of vehicles that we have that are run on fossil fuels? And not to mention the fact that a lot of folks who are in the the middle and lower income brackets don't have the money to go out and spend on an electric vehicle right now. So that $6,000, $10,000 tax credit doesn't do them any good when the vehicle's cost is 70 grand or 60 grand. So I think that these are some of the, the real life issues that people are grappling with. And then, you know, on top of all of that, you throw in what does the tax picture look like? Are we going to have pay for us here if we're gonna do this to reconciliation? Or is this going to be financed, uh, you know, using debt issuance? Or is it, or are we going to use a new term called user fees instead of taxes mm -hmm. here? So these are all, um, this is all new language that is creating division amongst the parties and within the parties. So you're talking about a lot of really important details. Is it too early then to ask the question, or in your case, to have answers to the question of 
what needs to fall into place for a bipartisan agreement to occur? No, it's not, <clears throat> because I think what needs to fall in place for a bipartisan agreement to occur is you have the framework of it in the Senate. But what you have on the House side is, is the Speaker has already said we will not even take up any bipartisan bill unless we're also sent over instructions for a reconciliation bill. Mm -hmm. And uh, the President also made mention of that and then walked it back a couple of days later. So it's, not, it's unclear to anybody what we're what the status is right now, but where you can get a deal and a bipartisan deal that will garner 60 votes, it will anger the socialists because they will not get what they want in the deal. They may get some, some green infrastructure, some renewable, but you can get a deal if President Biden were to come out and say, I support a bipartisan infrastructure package and there will be no reconciliation package this year. Mm -hmm. I think at that point, Mitch McConnell can turn to his caucus and say, you know, we, we take the president at his word here and try to move forward on the, the, the biggest package that they could come together on that, that takes into account the priorities of various jurisdictions across the country. And, and you probably could get 60 votes for something like that. Mm -hmm. it, does it make a... Does it help the process that the president has a, you know, in many cases, a long history, good or bad in some cases, I suppose, with a lot of the lawmakers who he is dealing with? Does that help or hurt the situation? It absolutely helps the situation because you, you can't discount personal relationships in Washington. They mean everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and it goes back to, to trust. But at the end of the day, politics is is what either can scuttle the deal or or it's going to bring the deal together and and the president's going to have a decision to make at some point as it relates to how he wants to to handle this he there is a lot of pressure on him from the socialist wing of the party to just bypass republicans move forward with a massive up to between four and six trillion dollar reconciliation package that includes everything on the the green deal list uh, human infrastructure, the new definitions that we were talking about previously, mm -hmm. and to force uh, put Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, and other moderates in a box and force them to vote against the party. Mm -hmm. um, I think if that happens, he risks, and Senator Schumer risks his gavel, and uh, and and uh, the president risks just turning the Senate over because at that point it becomes a question of whether or not th those in the middle want to continue to face down this kind of pressure in the party, or they just remove themselves from the party. So, so you've answered the question of why it is more or less that the president hasn't exhausted those, uh, the effort for a bipartisan agreement, uh, but what needs to fall into place for the Democrats to actually, to actually get something done through budget reconciliation? Because it doesn't seem as though it's going to be a slam dunk. It doesn't seem as though the Democrats have all their ducks in the row right now. Well, and, and on the Republican side, it's very difficult to vote for a bipartisan infrastructure bill and then, and then have a, a reconciliation bill be sprung on you with tax increases in it. Because mm -hmm. no matter what you say to your constituents, you're going to be tied to the fact that you voted to move forward one bill that was tied to another that increased taxes on folks. 
And so that is a very difficult place for any Republican to be in uh, as it relates to this process. And so at some point, if the president doesn't come out and say that there will only be one bill and that bill will be the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill and he's going to try to put as much of the socialist agenda in it as he possibly can up to the 60 vote margin. If that doesn't happen, then what you're going to have is Republicans will eventually stop negotiating with themselves. They'll go and sit on the sidelines. And what you're going to see is uh, a lot of these disputes that are permeating under the surface on taxes, on spending, on, on uh, how to green out the country are going to start to elevate themselves into the, the public discussion between and amongst Democrats. And you're going to have the moderates against the socialists, and, and those fights will become very public, and especially as it relates to taxes. There are a number of flashpoints in, in many of these areas. So it, it sounds like as far as the potential for budget reconciliation, uh, uh, it sounds as though, and I have a dozen or so times in recent weeks gone back to what it is that James Carville, uh, President Bill Clinton's former political strategist, uh, who back in April said that the Democrats can only be as liberal as Joe Manson allows them. That's basically what you're saying. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. He, he okay. Joe Manchin, uh, but, but what's interesting about what Senator Manchin has said in his op-eds and in, in uh, various sound bites is he, he didn't vote for the Trump tax cuts and he's okay with rolling back some of these tax cuts and increasing taxes on folks. And I think and if we get to the place where it's Democrats negotiating with Democrats, you, you're going to see a 25% corporate tax rate. That's almost a certainty. But then you go down into the micro detail of it, and you realize that a lot of these tax discussions are more local and geographical than they are ideological. And some of the examples of that are the stepped-up basis transfer, which is which was proposed to be removed, uh, increases in capital gains tax, and the reinstatement of the SALT deduction. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking three, about. Yeah, individual tax issues are flashpoints that will create a lot of anxiety amongst moderate Republicans and amongst the socialists, I mean, uh, moderate Democrats and amongst the socialist Democrats, because they, they go at the heart of what the messages are between the two in that within that party. And I think that's that could be the political calculus of Senator McConnell to allow that debate to happen in public so that people can see exactly what's being discussed here. Um, and that's why I think that that those three are, are are really significant issues. In fact, on the stepped up basis, you had 13 House Democrats send a letter to the president saying that farms should be exempted from any change in the stepped-up basis rules for tax treatment. Mm -hmm. Now, that's, that's one exemption. Other people are going to come in and say, well, small businesses should also be exempted. And so you get to a point where once you start granting these exemptions, everyone starts to come in asking for exemptions. And without a change in the stepped-up basis, it's very difficult for them to increase the capital gains tax rate because people people who can afford to will engage in tax planning to make sure that they don't have to pay uh, an increase in capital gains tax. So 
you can see how that would start to irritate and aggravate the democratic socialists, but the moderates are just gonna put facts forward as it relates to uh, the folks in their districts because House Democrats represent almost two thirds of the districts with the most concentrated capital gains returns according to the IRS. So this is, you know, the dead center of where the democratic coalition is. So that is going to be an issue for those folks who are going to have legitimate challenges in the 2022 midterm to vote for it. And but on the opposite end, you have this, the Democratic Socialists saying, no, these are wealthy people. They can afford it. Let's let's just increase that tax. So, you know, and then if you get into the, the salt issue, Bernie Sanders has said he would stand firm against reinstituting the salt deduction. And yet the entire New York delegation has said they won't vote for tax legislation if it doesn't include the SALT deduction. So, you know, 90% of that deduction goes to millionaires and it's in specific blue states. And so, you know, you have, again, this is, an, this is one place where you have the ideological struggle surface on the tax issue. So I think that if you do get a reconciliation bill and there is an agreement the agreement will come to a place that is palatable to the moderate senators who who are trying to help push forward the Biden agenda. It will leave out, it will include some of the democratic socialists uh, wants, but it will leave out the majority of them. And then the question becomes, do they act like the Tea Party and challenge their own party on issues that matter that are of this significance, or do they just vote along with with their party to get this moving forward and then campaign next year that they could have done more if they had mm-hmm. a more liberal Senate? Right. So l- I want to step back for a second and ask you a question, because as I am listening to you lay and describe the specifics of this landscape, I'm wondering how common it is when lawmakers are trying to get some kind of, uh, when they're trying to get consensus on something so large and something that could be so impactful, is it normal for uh, all of these different factions to be kind of operating and discussing and uh, talking in this manner? Or has the landscape changed or shifted in recent years? Like, you know, based on your experience, how is it that this process compares to uh, other massive or other large scale legislation that has actually either kind of gone right up to the end and maybe not happened or even gotten enacted? And, you know, if it isn't similar to the way that other thing, you know, the way that the landscape has looked, is it because there's been a change in Washington in recent years? I think there's a couple of bills that you can look at as examples. And they're not perfect corollaries, but they're examples of, of what you might be able to expect. And one, the first one is Obamacare. Um, that bill passed through the reconciliation process at the end with something that you probably remember and your listeners will call the Cornhusker kickback. Mm-hmm. That was a massive gift to the state of Nebraska in order for Chuck Hagel to be the last vote for uh, President Obama's signature legislation. And so 
to to the extent that you're asking, is this different? No, everybody has their own constituency, some moderate, uh, some socialist, some not socialist, but not exactly moderate. And all of these politicians in the House and in the Senate try to represent the interests of the folks who are in their states. And where the interesting line is drawn is when you have folks who are representing states that are on the Democratic side that are representing Republican states and vice versa, because those folks tend to try to want to come to the table and get to as much of an agreement as they possibly can. So the next example that I would give you would be Trump's failed repeal of Obamacare. That went all the way to the edge and it died on the Senate floor when Senator McCain was the last vote to say, no, we're not gonna use reconciliation to undo the Affordable Care Act. And a more recent example is the intra-party fight that occurred amongst Republicans when they jammed through the Tax Cut Act in 2017. So what is going on right now is not uh, atypical. The, the megaphone surrounding what's going on and amplifying the voices of the people on the fringes is, uh, is definitely different than it was in previous years. Uh, and that's because of social media, the voices on there, how people get drowned out, canceled, et cetera. So th those things get louder and louder. And, you know, cable news is, is very polarized. And so you, you hear specific examples that are related to things designed to make you aggravated. Uh, but what, what I think you're going to see if, if a deal does come through is there will be things like, uh, you know, a Cornhusker kickback. Maybe it'll go to, and maybe it'll be the, the Mountaineer uh, kickback or something like that or something that goes into Arizona. But that's the way that legislation gets done. And I think that at the end of the day, what you'll see is Republicans will bow out. You'll see a very public... Uh, struggle about taxes and about spending amongst Democrats. Generally, this takes a lot of political capital away from the presidency and it weakens uh, the president's position going into the midterms. Uh, and it puts, because it puts, it is naturally designed to put people who are in districts, especially those in moderate districts, in a place to take tough votes. And when you take tough votes in this environment with gerrymandering and the differences in the way uh, voters have changed their opinions over the, the course of the last 15 years, people lose their seats. I mean, what we do know for sure is we have a very volatile electorate. We've had the House change hands three times in the past 15 years. That did not happen previously. It wasn't that it would just shift like a pendulum. That is happening. And there are a number of, of toss-up seats. I think there's 35 of them across the country that are gonna be very hotly contested. And mm -hmm. it's going to be extremely difficult to, to uh, defend a tax increase unless you have something else that you could sell to the people in your constituency. And maybe you, you acquired funds that were specifically dedicated to your district to build something, mm -hmm. a water treatment plant or, or schools. So, um, you know, the earmarks are back and the, the spending will be directed towards those whose votes are needed. And those 
folks may realize that that may be the last time that they they spend in Congress after they do this. But it all depends on how people are willing to fall in line with the president's agenda at the end of the day. Let's close by talking about timing. I mentioned at the beginning that lawmakers are going to be returning to Washington uh, towards the end of July, July 19th. Uh, Both uh, uh, the House and the Senate are in session the week of the 19th, the week of the 26th. Senate's in session the first week of August. Then there's a pretty long break. There are a couple of weeks in September, a couple of weeks in October, but there's really not that much time left, not only at the end of the summer and the beginning of the fall, but even for the entire year. What is your take on the timing and whether or not lawmakers have enough uh, days left in the calendar to get something done this year? I, I absolutely believe that if something's going to get done, it's going to get done this year by the end of the year, sometime in the late fourth quarter. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. If it And if it doesn't, it's going to break down during that time frame around Thanksgiving or the beginning of December. Mm-hmm. They, they have enough time. They'll move it forward. Um, you know, what's very concerning is, is that the, the Senate is moving forward today, not only the bipartisan plan, but also the reconciliation bill, which just goes to show uh, Republicans why are we going to get involved in something like this when they clearly have a strategy and it doesn't involve us on the back end and it does involve tax increases. And that's mm-hmm. why I think uh, the, there are, this will not be, involve Republican votes at the end of the, of the day and in the fourth quarter. Okay. Okay. Well, if you would, please come back and talk with us in a, uh, in a couple of months, and we'll update everyone on where things stand. Oh, I'm happy to. Thank you for the opportunity to chat with your audience. Yeah, that'd be great. I appreciate it. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining us today. This is uh, Tom Kozak from Hilltop Securities, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening to Hilltop Talks, a Hilltop Securities podcast where we navigate the impact of politics and finance on the financial markets. For those interested, you can view our Hilltop Securities economic and municipal commentary by visiting hilltopsecurities.com backslash municipal dash commentary and hilltopsecurities.com backslash economic dash commentary. You can also follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again, everyone, for subscribing, tuning in, and participating. We look forward to bringing you more color in the future on topics that intersect both the world of politics and finance. This has been Tom Koslick at Hilltop Securities. This communication is intended for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice, nor is it an offer or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any investment or other specific product or service. Financial transactions may be dependent upon many factors such as, but not limited to, interest rates, tax rates, supply and change in laws, rules and regulations, as well as changes in credit quality and rating agency considerations. The effect of such 
changes in such assumptions may be material and could affect the projected results. Any outcome or result Hilltop Securities or any of its employees may have achieved on behalf of our clients in previous matters does not necessarily indicate similar results can be obtained in the future for current or potential clients. Hilltop Securities makes no claim the use of this communication will assure a successful outcome. For additional information, comments, or questions, please contact Hilltop Securities, Inc. Hilltop Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Hilltop Holdings, New York Stock Exchange, ticker symbol HTH. Hilltop Securities is located at 717 North Harwood Street, Dallas, Texas, 75201. Phone number 833-4-HILLTOP, H-I-L-L-T-O-P, and is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and the Securities Investor Protection Corporation.